Amen. Thank you, guys. My name is Daniel Sullivan. I am the worship pastor here, contrary to this morning. Uh, my wife serves on the prayer team here, and our four-year-old serves to teach us the Lord's patience. Um, he's over there running around like a wild child. You'll see him after service just taking loops. Um, this week, I was not on stage because Luke and me and a couple other guys got to go to a conference called Together for the Gospel. And uh, it was basically, it started out as a pastor's conference and it kind of grew into more than that. Um, so we got to join with 12,000 other believers and we got to talk through theology and doctrine and hear from some of the, the greatest theological thinkers of our time and some of the most brilliant uh, doctrine teachers that are alive today. And so it was, it was a huge blessing to get to do that. Luke asked me if I would share um, one thing that really stood out. And one thing in the midst of getting to talk about holiness and justification and all these really big theological and doctrinal things, there was a, a pastor called Shai Lin, and he taught on remembering Jesus. And this was a statement he made. Love for doctrine is not the same as love for Jesus. It's possible to have all the right theologians on your bookshelf, to listen to all the right podcasts, and to know all the right theological terminology, and yet not know God. That's not to say that doctrine isn't important, though. If you say that to me, then that doctrine isn't important. My next question to you will be, who is Jesus? Your answer to that question will reveal either you have sound doctrine or false doctrine. And so in the midst of that, it was refreshing to hear that even while we're digging deep and we're looking for the meat of God's word, that we remember Jesus and that we use that to get closer to Jesus and have Jesus drawn to himself, as opposed to just uh, theoretical knowledge, if you will. So this morning, I'm going to read. Um, our text is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, and it says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you pour out on us so freely. We recognize that we are undeserving. We could never earn it, God, and yet you reached out to us. So God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for sanctification. We thank you that you continually draw us near. Your word tells us that. God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is 
good for teaching. And so this morning, I pray that as Luke teaches, you give him the words to say, that you speak through him, that the Spirit is on him, and that the Spirit continues to work in this room. God, we need you to do what only you can do. So God, break hearts where they need to be broken. Mend hearts where they need to be mended. Draw dead men to life, God. And draw those of us that you call children closer to yourself. We love you and we thank you so much for your many blessings. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross and the blood that was shed for us. We thank you for the empty tomb and the resurrection. And it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. 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 Good morning, church. Acts chapter 6. And I would echo some of the things that uh, that Daniel <clears throat> said. Um, thank you as a, a church for allowing um, us to be able to, uh, to be poured into. And um, Justin was going in theory about 18 months ago before he found out that Rhett was entering the world a week before, but uh, anyway, we're thankful, and, and uh, some, some of the other men in our church were able to go, thank you. I, I guess as we look at Acts chapter 6, what, what Daniel shared is true. I think it was uh, Richard Wormbrand who suffered greatly for Christ under the hands of communists. Uh, he was from Romania. He said, God is the truth. The Bible is the truth about the truth. Theology is the truth about the truth about the truth. And the best sermon you've ever heard in your life is the truth about the truth about the truth about the truth. So this morning, you may hear the truth about 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 the truth. All right? That's all we're getting at. But the point is, the message of the New Testament church was not simply facts about a person. What caused them to turn their world upside down and to go even faithfully to death in, a, in coliseums before gladiators and wild animals, to be faithful unto death, to, to change the whole climate of the Roman Empire, was not because they believed facts about somebody, but because they believed that person was alive and that he was ruling and he was reigning. And one week after Easter, can I just let you in on a secret? Jesus is still alive this morning. Amen. Jesus is alive and Jesus is working. Acts chapter 6, a very interesting passage, and I need you to note a few things. You'll remember the week before Easter, we finished up chapter 5, and we ended on the disciples got beat up. Now, they had been being warned in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, but at the end of Acts chapter 5, they get beat up, and we learned that there's a time for suffering. But if you'll remember... Before they got beat up, Gamaliel, this, although he was a minority in the council, he stood up and he basically said, y'all need to chill. Keep calm and back away from these guys because if what they're doing is of God, you can't stop it. And then you may even find yourself opposing God. And so they beat up the apostles and chapter 5 ends with, they never stop preaching. They were resolved to preach Jesus as the Christ. And so what Daniel read for us, if you look in chapter 6, verse 1, we find that Gamaliel's advice has been taken because, guess what's happening? The disciples are still preaching. 
The apostles are preaching the resurrection of Christ, and first time this word is used in Acts, the disciples, believers, were increasing in number. Now, verse 1 tells us that this was probably a little while later after the events that we've been studying. And so you know how the book of Acts operates. Acts chapter 6 is almost like the turning of a page into a new chapter. If you'll remember, in our study, we've got three arrows. Jesus went up. Who? Holy Spirit, right. I, I, I didn't tip you off good enough. So Jesus goes up. Spirit comes down, and then we're looking at who went out in the rest of the book. The church, right? Chapters 1 and 2 talk about how Jesus went up and he ascended. The Spirit came down, he descended. And then beginning in Acts chapter 2 after Peter preaches, we see the church start going out, but mainly in their city. Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5 is the ministry of the church in Jerusalem. And you'll remember kind of the thesis of the book is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in four places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see them starting to accomplish that first part of it. The Spirit has come upon them and now they're being a witness. They're testifying to the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. But... If we're going to be obedient to Jesus, guess what? We've got to start moving into Judea. You got to start moving into Samaria and you got to start moving into the other parts of the earth. Chapter six, seven, eight, and nine in the book of Acts is where we start turning the page and we start extending from Jerusalem into those next places. Now, in order to do that, if you've kind of read ahead or if you ever read the book of Acts, chapter six, seven, eight, and nine detail three people really. Stephen, Philip, not the apostle, but he's an evangelist, and then Saul of Tarsus. And in order for us to figure out who Stephen is, and who Philip is in chapter 8, and who Saul of Tarsus is in chapters 8 and 9, this story, Luke inserts it for several reasons. Number one, to introduce these guys that the book of Acts is about to deal with, but to detail a problem that popped up in the local church and how they would react to it. That's the title of the message this morning, Problems and Priorities in the Church. Now I want you to think about what the church had experienced together, and I got some peas for you. They had experienced prayer together, right? Before the Spirit came, they were in the upper room, they were waiting. They had experienced promises. Jesus had made a promise, I'm going to the Father. When I go to the Father, I'll pour out the Spirit. They had experienced Pentecost together. They'd experience like ministry and spiritual prosperity. I mean, 3,000 people got saved in one day. Like, that's good. They had experienced persecution together. They get warned, they go back and they report to the brothers and they all pray. And, but now at the end of chapter five, they've been beaten. We looked at it a few weeks ago, 39 times. Two stripes on the back, one in the front, times 13. 39 times. So they'd experienced all of these Mixture of events together, but the one P they had not experienced yet is problems. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 6. It seems as if Satan had brought persecution from the outside. Remember in chapter 5? Oh, I missed a P. There was divine punishment, right? Ananias and Sapphira. There was sin inside the church. And in both of those situations, persecution, Satan couldn't stomp out the church through persecution on the outside, and he couldn't stop out the church with sin on the inside. So now he brings 
to them the possibility for distraction through a problem. I don't know if you've ever experienced problems in the local church. If you haven't ever experienced a problem in the local church, you had not been in a local church, right? One of my buddies in India says it this way, to dwell with the saints above, that is glory. To dwell with the saints below, that is another story, right? We've all experienced problems in the local church. Some are just because people in the local church that claim Jesus don't know Jesus, and so they act like they don't know Jesus, and somehow they got into the church, and this is why earlier this spring we went through membership, because check this out, if you're a member of Cross Point Church, we're under shepherds, and we have a responsibility to care for you and your family. And part of that is to vet who joins the local church, right? Because eventually, guess what? Somebody may be teaching your kid. Somebody may be counseling your teenager. Someone may be praying for you. And guess what? Godly biblical church membership affirms that those who belong to Jesus have had a radical change of heart called the new birth. And they know Jesus, and they love Jesus. And so while the church is inviting people, come, come to the altar, come to the cross, come know this living Christ, yet the people that are affirmed as part of the church are those who, to the best of our ability, we've discerned that they know Jesus, that they believe Jesus, that their life's been changed by Jesus. I don't want to rehash the starting point series, but you get that. But just the fact of that we're all still on the assembly line being conformed to the image of Christ means <laughs> that there's going to be problems in the local church. You're rubbing elbows with sinners in the process of sanctification. In the process of uh, the time Lauren and I have been married over 16 years, no doubt there's times that, that uh, she never gets on my nerves. I always get on her nerves because of my sin. She's you know, and so whenever I blow up or get mad or sin against my wife, that happens, right? Am I the only person that that happens to? Uh, if, if it's not, ladies, you can go ahead. We'll just have confession time. You can stand up and talk. Anyway, no, we won't do that. I, I tell Lauren, I say, Lauren, I'm sorry you married a sinner. And she'll say that was the only type available to marry at the time. <laughs> and so being in the local church, we all are still, even though we're born again, we're being sanctified, and we still have sin that we struggle with. And that's what we have here. I want you to see first this morning the problem. The problem in our text was that certain widows were being neglected, particularly the Hellenist widows. Now, there's a lot going on here that us Gentiles may not grasp, and so we need to do a little cultural work and and an explanation so that we can understand what's going on. Now, if you notice in verse 1, that the disciples were increasing in numbers, so the church is growing. But within this disciples, these believers, notice there's two groups, the Hellenist and the Hebrews. Now, we need to define these so that we can understand what's going on. The problem was that these widows of the Hellenists, whoever they are, they were being neglected. Now, here we go. Who are the Hellenists? So if, if you... Think back to world history, Alexander the Great, world empire, Greek, Greece and, and Greek influence spread about, and we call that what? The Hellenization of the world. And so, 
Because Jews were scattered from Palestine, particularly because the Assyrian Empire are in exile in 722 with the northern kingdom, uh, the Jews of the northern kingdom are taken to Assyria, and then in 586, the Babylonian exile, Jews were dispersed from Palestine and literally found themselves in Egypt. They found themselves far west as, as Rome. If you read the book of Acts later on, you find communities of Jews everywhere. And so the Hellenists were a group of Jews. They were, their ethnicity, they were Jewish, but they were from outside Palestine. Some of these possibly were in the church because they were saved on the day of Pentecost. You remember when we walked through the day of Pentecost, man, there were Jews from all over coming in for Passover, possibly staying seven weeks for Pentecost. And so they got saved and Jesus is the Messiah. And so guess what? We're hanging around. We're, we're joining with this community of believers. We find in history that some Jews, having been born in different places of the Roman Empire later on in life, they actually moved back to the promised land because they wanted to be near the temple. They wanted to be near the law of God. We'll see in just a minute why some of these were widows. But it's not just that. It's not just they spoke Greek, and it's not just that they were from outside the the. Um, outside of Palestine, it's been suggested in some historical records that the Hellenists actually may have had a little looser approach to the law. So not, not full-born theological liberalism. They still respected the law, but I mean, just a little more free in their, in their, their interactions with it. And so you've got this group in Jerusalem, part of the church. They speak Greek. They're from outside. They've moved home. They, they're here or they're just hanging around. And we've, we've walked through maybe some of the needs that came up as these people were like, you know, renting. They didn't, they didn't mean to stay in Jerusalem. They got saved on the day of Pentecost. On the flip side, you have the Hebrews. These are Jewish Jews from Palestine. They speak Aramaic, strict according to the law. And you can instantly see the contrast, right? They're not the same in geography, where they came from. They're not the same in language. Although the same ethnicity, their cultures are completely different. The Hellenists embraced Greek culture a little more than the Jews did. Both believing in the God of Israel, both with a right attitude towards the law, and both here, born again, believing the gospel, Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that even in the early church, before we even have really Gentiles coming in, there was diversity in this sense. And can I just tell you that one of the signs of a, of a healthy church is that it reflects this community? Now, now, we don't just seek diversity for the sake of diversity, but guess what? If God grants us diversity through the preaching of the gospel, praise God, because that's what heaven's going to be like. All tongues, all, all tribes, all languages, all nations. And it's also on a Sunday morning that Justin or I can, can introduce to you a people group. Like, get to know them because you're going to spend an eternity with them. And so you have these two groups, and this problem comes about. Some of the resentment, this is from one commentator, some Jews made little secret of contempt for the Hellenists. So the Jewish Jews, the Hebrews, would look down upon the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, because they weren't native-born. And they, in a sense, viewed them as second-class Israelites. But these Hellenists were living in Jerusalem. They had come from the dispersion and they were still under some suspicion 
because of where they were born, what language they spoke, and they appeared to be more Greek than Hebrew. And in the midst of this cultural contrast, the Bible says in verse 1, a complaint arose. And what was the complaint? The Hellenist widows had been mistakenly overlooked in daily food distribution. Now a couple things to note here. Apparently at this time in the church, there were needs, food needs, monetary needs, and so the church had come together and they had begun a food ministry and it was daily. Now this was really interesting because these are all Jewish Christians. John Polhill, on his commentary of Acts, said that the church probably pulled from a Jewish practice. The Jews had really two food distributions in and around Jerusalem. One happened every Friday. It was for residents. And these poor people who were resident Jews, this is in the Jewish community, community, not in the Christian community, they were basically given money for a week. It was given every Friday before the Sabbath, and it was enough money for 14 meals, so two meals a day. So they gave you money, and you were set for the next week. But there was also, for non-residents that were temporarily in Jerusalem, they would be given house-to-house food and drink for the day. And so it seems as if the early church, coming out of Judaism, seeing needs, showing the love of Jesus, taking care of tangible needs, what do they do? They seem like they pull from their Jewish background and they begin to incorporate that. But a complaint arose. You know what a complaint is, don't you? The Greek word literally means to murmur. It, in some Greek usage of it, it was like the cooing of doves. Low, suppressed discourse. That's why we call it murmur, right? You can say the word as you imitate what happened. Murmur, 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 murmur. And apparently, because they were the minority, they were being overlooked. The Greek tense here for neglect is in the imperfect tense, which means it was continual. It just didn't happen one day. But a few weeks had gone by. A few months had gone by. This Hellenist widow, I didn't get any food. This Hellenist widow, I didn't get any food. And all of a sudden, mar, 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 here it comes. So there's a problem. And it's not just the fact that these precious widows were not receiving the food they needed. Why were widows there? Many times the Jews in their older age would move back to Palestine because they wanted to be buried in their homeland. And so we can see a great number of these women whose husbands had already died and now they're left, but they're believing in Jesus and the church has taken responsibility. The Old Testament law said, take care of the widows. And later in the New Testament, what does it say? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to do what? To take care of widows and to take care of orphans in their time of need. That's what it means to offer God your worship. Take care of the needs. But the bigger problem here is not just empty stomachs or them having to possibly pay for their food. Here it is. This problem could potentially tear down gospel unity in the church. That's the problem. Is that right now, God is taking people of one ethnicity, yes, but from different cultures, different languages. We already see that, that in time Revelation 7, 9, and 10 where God gathers people from it. We already started seeing just within the Jews, different culture. They get saved. And guess what? 
They're, they're united in the same spiritual body as someone with another language and another culture. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll have a Jew-Gentile rub, but now we've got a Jew-Jew rub. And so what is going to happen? Because, check this out, the spiritual needs are always more important than the physical needs, as great as they are. And just within five years, we don't want a church in the New Testament, the only church on the map, fighting against itself, and in doing so, guess what? Extinguishing its gospel witness in Jerusalem. Oh, what all those miracles are for. Oh, Peter preached that message. He can't even get people to agree. Man, how shady are those Christians? Man, they preach a good game, but they let widows starve. Can't you just, murmur, 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 here it comes. And so there was a real, real, real problem. At the end of every main point this morning, I want to give you a, just a truth principle. Here's the first. Problems will always be a reality in the church. How we respond to problems determines what type of church we'll be. So, can I just tell you, Crosspoint Church is not a perfect church. And if you think Crosspoint Church is a perfect church, you are going to be severely disappointed. And if you get mad at Crosspoint Church because we're not a perfect church and you go somewhere else and you find a perfect church, don't go there. You'll mess it up. Because the perfect church doesn't exist, right? Go read in Revelation. Even the most spiritual church in, in Ephesus, they had abandoned the love they had at first. Just as Daniel told us, you can be zealous in your doctrine and yet practically not love the person of Jesus. Problems will always be a reality, but it's how we respond to problems. And so if you will see what's going on, Satan's trying to blow the thing up. We're at a crossroads. How are we going to respond? Second big truth this morning, we not only see a problem, we see the solution. And what's the solution? The solution put forth was to prioritize ministry and select servants. It says in verse 2 that the 12 summoned the full number of disciples together. And when they get together, there's no rebuke. They don't bring this dude up and say, bro, you didn't serve the widows. What's wrong with you? I mean, that, that would be like pre-Pentecost Peter, right? But he doesn't do it here. Nobody's blamed. Nobody like tries to justify their behavior. So it's almost as if the apostles are like, yeah, yeah, somebody blew it. And this is legit. This complaint is legitimate. And what it probably was, it was probably just an oversight or an overlook. Nobody really was had anything you know, wrong in their heart. They weren't trying to like starve widows and not give them their food. It just kind of, remember how we're talking about how, how the church is expanding, not by the tens or the hundreds, but like by the thousands. And I think it's pretty good it went along this long without a problem. So the apostles summon the church, but I think it's interesting that we should, we should see they didn't let the problem fester. And can I just tell you this? Sometimes confrontation isn't a cuss word in the church. Sometimes confrontation is necessary, and confrontation may be too hard of a word. Nowadays, when everybody wears their feelings on the sleeve, maybe dialogue 
or let's connect over coffee, right? Regardless, you got a problem, you got to deal with it. You got a splinter in your finger and it's underneath. You you may have to take a little knife and, and slit the skin so that you can pull it out, right? The point is, if you let a problem fester, it gets worse. Can I just tell you, there's a way to deal with problems and do it in the right way and yet deal with it absolutely direct. We should not let problems fester in the church. What does Jesus say? If your brother sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Talk to everybody but your brother on social media about your brother? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to your brother, right? Find it interesting. Not if you sin against your brother, but if your brother sins against you. Don't wear your feelings on your sleeve. Go talk to him. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So they don't let it fester and they deal with this head on. So what, what actions did they take? First, they summon the church. And the 12 summon the full number of disciples. Where they're in the Greek means to call together. So they called the church together. And I don't know where they met because there's a lot of people. It says full number, so we would like to think at least most, if not all, the disciples were there. Thousands of people. Now, why do they do all of this? I think it's important that the problem was a corporate problem, right? The knowledge of it was, was corporate. It was not just against one person or even, even within a minority of widows. There were still a numerous number of widows that had been affected. A group within the church had been affected. And guess what? More importantly, one group of the church was murmur, murmur, murmur against another group in the church. And so guess what? The entire church is affected. So guess what? The entire church needs to talk about it. There's times, I think this is probably the, the best way to say, I think J. Edwin Orr said this, the circle of commission of sin or problems determines the circle of confession of sin. Or the commission, the circle of commission determines the circle of conversation about the problem. I think that's a great principle. So guess what? If three people are involved, guess what? Get those three people together. But here, everybody's involved, and so guess what? We're going to talk about it with everybody. When they get together, no one's blamed, no one's rebuked, and the disciples show great wisdom. So when we deal with problems, it's just better if we deal with them, if they affect everybody, let's just deal with them head on. Let's get out in the open. Truth and grace here. Who did grace and truth come through according to John 1? Jesus. (laughs) This is how they're acting. I want to spend a little time here. Not only did they summon the church, but notice that they stated the priority of preaching and prayer. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. What a statement. What a statement in 21st century America when everybody has an agenda and everybody has a priority and everybody has some plan that they want to be a part of. I mean, let me just state the obvious. Because you could look at that and you could say, dude, how prideful is that statement? Really? Like you're going to put a sermon over a widow? Like really, dude? Can I, can I just tell you this? That there's humility in this statement and the apostles are saying there are no supermen in the church. They're saying we're not the Avengers. There's 12 of us. And yes, God uses us to heal people, 
but we have the same time as you. We have the same energy as you. We need the same sleep as you, and we can't do it all ourselves. What humility, right? And so what they're saying is, we're not saying that widows aren't important. We're not saying that the needs of widows aren't important. But Jesus called us to preach his resurrection and to oversee his church. And if we get caught up in everything, including good things, we'll never accomplish anything. In the midst of good things, don't forget the main thing. And what is the main thing? Not just the apostles, but the 120, which became the 500, which became the 5,000, which became however many are in Acts chapter 6. Every single one of those believers were called to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just tell you what your calling is, first and foremost. It's to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. It's to be a witness of his death, burial, and resurrection. It's to be a witness for the gospel. It's to talk about what Jesus did a long time ago on a cross, a grave, and a resurrection. And it's to talk about what he's done in your life because of that. What he did for you and what he's done in you. That's all of us. How many times do we focus on good things and we do good things, but we don't bring the gospel into good things? And so what you see the apostles doing here is a needed and appropriate priority of ministry. I wrote a few things down about this. We need the truth to our hearts more than service to our needs. Both can be done and both should be done, but one is eternally imperative. What the apostles are saying is that one day, our stomachs will be eternally satisfied in a glorified body. But a soul without the gospel perishes eternally. And it's not right for us to spend all of our time taking care of physical needs and neglect the great ministry of the Word and the prayer. It's interesting there. Let me just stop. There's actually in the Greek a definite article. He's not saying just like prayer. He's saying like the prayer. So it's probably talking about them overseeing gatherings like this where the church prays and the church learns and the church gathers. So they're saying Jesus appointed us to this task. And so for us staying in our lane and doing what he's called us to do is not us discounting the needs of widows, but check this out. What we're doing is what he's called us to do. And then they go on to say, just as he's called us to do this, guess what? He's going to call somebody to do that. Can I just encourage you? that faithfulness is being obedient to what Jesus calls you to do. Don't spend your life doing something you're not called to do. Don't spend your life creating something that you think should be done when God doesn't call His people to do it in the first place. God doesn't call His people to do something or make up something new He wants them to do. All are called to make disciples. All are called to witness. All are called to love. All are called to serve. And the apostles are overseeing this and they say, we've 
got to preach. This is why we preach every Sunday. Because we need the Word. This is why preaching and teaching was a priority in the church. And if you look at it, they probably preach more than one message a week. And all 11 were preaching. I love that. Like, having a plurality of leadership saves a local church from having a personality cult. Like, I need to listen to Justin preach. Like, he needs to listen to me preach. If you like one of us better than the other, don't. God gives you men to serve you. God gives us and Daniel and Ryan and Paul to serve you so that you won't be attached at the hip at someone where your faith won't rest in the wisdom of man, but it'll rest in the power of God. And so this is how God protects His church. You need to be here to hear the Word of God. They could neglect many things, but they could not neglect the ministry of the church. This is why a few months ago, when you signed a church covenant, you pledged to be here and gathering. And we're not checking roll. But check this out. By you gathering, you know what you're saying? Man, I need this in my life. I need to listen to truth. I need to gather with other Christians. I need to worship with them. So, so awesome this week. All we really had for worship Okay. I've had some churches where they set their alarms at a certain time. I guess we're just going to drop the lights out. I'm just kidding. Just this week, 12,000 people, and there was one instrument in the room. It was a piano. And sometimes you couldn't even hear the piano because you could hear everybody else singing. So sometimes I would just look around and like, just watch this guy sing. And I do that sometimes here. Like I'll look around. I'm not like, you know, crowd stalking. Like I'm encouraged to hear you and see you. And I need that. And you need that. And we need God's word opened up. (laughs) I, I know, I know we preach a long time. But I know you've binge watch episodes, one episode longer than a message. And if you're going to get one public sermon a week that we agonize over and we pray for, guess what? I want it to be something worth your time. I want the ministry of the Word to mean something to you. I just got to believe that somehow when we look at a, a whiteboard in, in the office and we start dividing the text and we start walking through a book, it is crazy how God sovereignly and His providence addresses needs of the church. Coming home from T4G, I want to preach on the cross, man. What are you going to preach on? Widows and food distribution <laughs> and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon. But you know what? God has a purpose in this this morning. What else did they do? They selected spiritual men to serve. I would direct your attention to one word in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out. Choose, select. The word there in the Greek literally means to inspect, to look accurately or diligently with the meaning to look for, to seek out, to choose or select on the basis of having investigated carefully. We're going to keep preaching, but we're not delegitimizing the need. And so what you do, pick out seven men. Why seven? Some people think Jewish 
courts had seven members. So the apostles are bringing again, just a Jewish practice in. Take care of this. Seven, take care of it. And guess what? We'll appoint them because we believe in this ministry. And what I love is, I didn't tell you this. It says in verse four, we'll devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. At the end of verse one, the word distribution is the same word that's used in verse four for ministry of the word. They're the same word. Which tells you that the apostles say, listen, to feed widows is ministry. To preach sermons is ministry. We don't neglect one for the other, but we can prioritize. So you pick out men. What are their qualifications? Full of the Spirit and of wisdom, of good repute. I'll come back to this in just a moment. Let me give you the second truth. The church is called to many ministries, but we must never be distracted from prioritizing the gospel, the word, and prayer above all. That, that's it. We can do many things. But if we, if we feed empty stomachs and we clothe the naked and we dig wells overseas, but we don't preach the gospel, we just make the road to eternal hellfire a little nicer along the way. So that's why we prioritize the gospel. And to care for physical needs doesn't mean you're woke. I much prefer the term Jesus told us to be awake, not woke. To be aware of the Spirit. To be sensitive to the Spirit. And in the midst of meeting physical needs, we don't neglect the great need. As John Piper says, we care about all types of suffering, but preeminently we care about eternal suffering, so we preach the Gospel. The problem, the solution. What else is in this text? The church takes action. I'll roll through this one pretty quick. Verse 5, so what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose these seven guys. Stephen, who will be the main character in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Philip, who will turn out to be an evangelist. He'll actually have four daughters later, we find out in Acts 21, that will prophesy. We don't know too much about Prochorus. Some associate him with the Apostle John and it's even in church history that he died as a martyr at Antioch. We don't know anything about Nicanor or Timon or Parmenas. Nicholas actually had a, a sect or a group that's condemned in Revelation attached to him, but people think they just kind of rubber stamped his name. We don't know much about these guys. I do think it's interesting that, that just in passing, Nicholas is a, is a proselyte. He's a Gentile. That's pretty cool here. Already we see God saving Gentiles. And what do they do? They set these before the apostles. They pray and lay their hands on. Let me just make a few statements here. So, so the church is pleased with the apostles' plan. Now, now notice the, the, the relationship between leadership and the lay people. Notice the, the, the apostles put forth a plan, and guess what? It pleases the congregation. It's a great thing to have leadership to trust, right? It's a great thing. They recognize the spiritual nature of these men. They recognize their, I would even say in some ways, their commitment to the word in this situation calls the congregation to trust them in, their, in this matter. And so they're pleased with it. And so they select seven spiritual men. Spiritual men of good repute, meaning that there was a good witness about them. There wasn't anything contradictory in their life. They were full of the spirit. Not that they received the Spirit, but the Spirit controlled them. They were wise. They were spiritual, and yet they were practical. They knew how to deal with this. 
And so what happens? The apostles appoint these men to distribute the food. It says in verse 6, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and they lay hands on them. The apostles are blessing and appointing these men for service. Let me just make a quick note. These men didn't have spiritual authority. They had spiritual responsibility. The spiritual authority lay with the apostles. Let me just give you one truth in passing real quick. Ministry from the church requires spiritual people in the church. You had to have spiritual men to serve in this matter. But guess what? The congregation had to be spiritual to be able to detect who's spiritual, right? Some churches today, because a guy owns three gas stations, we give him a responsibility. Or because somebody's got this and clout and all that, you don't have to have a full bank account to be full of the Spirit. Amen? And we need spiritual people to serve. Can I just tell you that as we're talking about needs, if you know of needs and you hear of needs, like let somebody know. Stick it in a box in the back. Send an email. If it's a private need, reach out to one of us. Just a few weeks ago, we, we told you that people were going to the Dominican Republic. And guess what? Some money came in to meet those needs, praise God. And if God still lays that on your heart, give it. If God lays on your heart to give towards something else, give it. Just amazing how the church takes care of the church. Let me answer a question real quick before we finish. So it's been said many times that these seven were the first deacons. Let me just answer that question real quick. Were these the first deacons? I think it's probably better to assume that these men were kind of deacons in prototype. They're not called deacons, although the verb to serve that we get the noun deacon from is used several times in this passage. They serve, but they're not called deacons. The word deacon really doesn't appear later in, until Philippians and 1 Timothy. It's not mentioned in Acts. As we'll find out in Acts chapter 8, these dudes' ministry ended in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 because after Stephen is martyred, spoiler alert, the church disperses because of the persecution. So we might not say these guys are deacons proper, but they're a great model as the office of deacon came about later to look back and say, hey, yeah, those guys served. Just so you know, at Crosspoint, we have four deacons, Philip Slaughter, Casey Hicks, Clay Taylor, and Michael Trest. And how deacons function at our church, we have eight small groups. If you haven't been a part of a small group, quick pitch. They're on the website. We'd love for you to get plugged into a small group. Needs come up through small groups. We have one deacon assigned to two small groups. Your small group leader knows who your deacon is. We also have widows and homebound in our church. And the Bible tells us that we should take care of those people. And so we have deacons as well as pastors that check in with those people with needs. And our deacons serve. The deacon is an office of service, not leadership. I'm thankful that our deacons do that. So what happens? You got a problem, you got a solution, you got action. Can I just get to the end of the story, man? The story continues because Christ continued to bless and build His church. Gamaliel was right, y'all. If this is of God, you cannot overthrow them. Verse 7 tells us what happened. The Word of God continued to increase. That's an interesting statement. How does, like, did, did books like grow? Like, what is it talking about? Now, what it's saying is, is that as the Word landed in fertile hearts, the Word grew in people's hearts. 
For the first time, people heard the Word and they were convicted and they were saved. For people that were believers, the Word of God grew in them by the work of the Spirit and they began to follow Jesus. The Word was finding fertile soil. But we also find in verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. More people were getting saved. More people were being discipled. You couldn't stop it. Jesus is blessing His church. And then what a great statement, this summation a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This time in Jerusalem, there were 8,000 priests and there were 10,000 Levites that helped the priest. And they were just ordinary people. And the Bible says a great number of them become obedient. And guess what? In the midst of this preaching about a crucified carpenter who rose from the dead, we have men that serve Every two weeks in the temple, we find them at the end of this passage. Wow, beautiful this is. The church is dealing with different cultures and, and different uh, languages and, and potential problems. And yet they obey Jesus. And at the end, the fruit is all these priests find out that Jesus is their Messiah. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all their temple service. And Jesus is the one who was sacrificed and his blood was offered on the altar and, and the veil was torn. I don't think they maybe not rebuilt the veil yet, right? And it's Jesus who welcomes us into the temple beyond where we can go on our own. People are finding Jesus as Messiah. Here's where I want to end this morning. Here's the truth, the last truth. Obeying Jesus in the church brings his blessing upon the church. Now, we don't earn God's blessing. We don't earn God's favor. What I love about this is that you see the apostles responding rightly. You see the congregation responding rightly. Obviously, Stephen and the other six, they were willing to do this. You see the undertone of the grace of God allowing all this to happen. So when we decide in our hearts to obey Jesus, even the ability to do that is from God's grace. And you almost see verse 7 being like the divine smile upon what's happening. At the beginning of the story, at the end, man, this well-oiled machine of sinners in the process of sanctification, all not of programs, but all the Spirit, and you see Jesus looking down, and you can just hear Him from above saying, I will Build my church and the gates of hell and the gates of the Sadducees and the gates of religion and the gates of the Roman Empire will not stop it. This is what Christ does. Like the apostles, Christ serves us with His Word. He teaches us His Word. Like the seven, He serves us with His love. Why? To build His church. So when we have problems in the church, guess what? Let's address them with the Word, in love, in compassion. Why? Because we want to obey Jesus. It is His church. Will we have problems? Yeah. But problems allow us to clarify what's really important to set our eyes to obey Jesus no matter what it takes. Would you bow with me? Just allow you to 
Think about the message for a second. There a loss of priority in your life? Maybe a focus on the peripheral rather than the center? Oh, the grace of Jesus, how He will redirect us. Maybe you haven't been neglecting widows. Maybe you've been neglecting something else in your life. Maybe you had not been focused on the Word and prayer as you should. Jesus doesn't cast guilt or blame. He just gently calls you back. This morning, talk to Him. As a church, we can prioritize and give place to the things that are nearest and dearest to His heart. just a moment, we're going to celebrate Jesus and the church and His relationship to us by taking of the Lord's Supper together. So all of this, as I stated a minute ago, is of the grace of God. It is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that makes all of this possible. So pray to that end. We're about to take the Lord's Supper together. Just spend a few moments in private prayer. Confessing sin, worshiping Jesus, praising Jesus, thanking Him for who He is. So you pray. Luke's Gospel, verse 20 or chapter 22 says, And Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. We're told that as we take of the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask Justin and Paul and Casey to come forward, take their place. I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and you can come forward and take the elements, return to your seat. And when everyone's taken, we will all take the Lord's Supper together. Lord's Supper is for those, you don't have to be a member of this church, but it's only for believers who have placed their faith in what Jesus has done for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You 
that you will always build your church. Even in the midst of our problems and our sin and our weakness, you have committed yourself to us and you have demonstrated your love for us and that your body was broken on our behalf. Your blood was shed for our forgiveness. We're thankful that you died in our place for our sin and you were buried on the third day you rose again and you will return one day. Lord, we're so so privileged to be part of your people. And we pray for those even maybe in this place, Lord, that haven't come yet, that you would draw them by your grace. You would bring them to yourself. And they would repent and believe the gospel and know what it is to be a child of God. As we remember and celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, we proclaim your death, Lord, until you come. So bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. You come and take of the elements. Church, we remember and we celebrate His body broken for us, His blood shed for us to make us His own people. Take in remembrance of Him. This morning, we're convinced that Jesus is alive. We're convinced that Jesus is Lord. We're convinced that Jesus is building His church. And because of all those truths, we believe that Jesus is worthy. As we conclude our time together this morning, let's worship Him by telling Him how worthy He is. You guys lead us.
worthy of this. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here this morning, Luke. Thank you for uh, speaking today. Um, we hope you have a great week. Just two quick uh, reminders for today. Uh, ba- uh, wedding shower for Khaki Pete's at 2 o'clock at Bill and Julie Hoag's home. And also, if you're interested in going to the Dominican, uh, there's going to be a meeting as soon as I be quiet right over here in front of the baptistry. Uh, so we hope you have a great afternoon, a great week. We'll see you back next Sunday.